I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to engage in some biblical philosophy. Now in the intro to Ecclesiastes, I mentioned that I consider myself more of a biblical philosopher than I do a theologian. And you probably have a question on that. What exactly does that mean? Isn't everyone who engages in studying the Bible a theologian in some way, trying to figure out God? And I think that's where the definition change is uh, comes in. Because most people, when they think of theologian, we, we think of people who try and contemplate the nature of God. And that is part of what uh, we're trying to do. However, a, a philosopher is someone who tries to gain wisdom, who the word philosophy, it actually comes from the word for physical. So it's dealing with the physical world, much like uh, Solomon's doing in this book, trying to deal with the things under the sun. And so the word philosophy, uh, I see it as having to do more with how how is man then supposed to act? Now, there's so many theologians out there contemplating God, contemplating his nature, uh, trying to dig into these divine things that uh, are important, but often we kind of lose sight on how then does that inform the way I live? Well, when it comes to the Bible, that's that's what I want to know. That's what I'm trying to figure out is how then do we live? What do we do with this knowledge? We can know everything about God, but then what do we do with it? How do we enact God's character? How do we enact what the Bible expects of us? And that's what philosophy is about. It's about human action. And so that's why I consider myself a biblical philosopher rather than a theologian. So I'm here once again with my beautiful, lovely, amazing wife, Rebecca. Hi. So we are in Ecclesiastes. Once again, we are going to, actually not once again, this week we're going to open up the book of Ecclesiastes and we're actually going to read some of Ecclesiastes and then attempt to figure out what the heck does it mean. Because I'll tell you, if you read different translations of Ecclesiastes, you can get uh, different ideas of Ecclesiastes. We so what I would, that. yeah, we we noticed that reading through this uh, earlier. So I would recommend, I am going to be reading from the ISR, but I would recommend you pull out your own translation, something different, something that is not the ISR or the scriptures. Pull out something else and follow along with me and just just kind of see just how different, at least my translation is from the one that you're reading. And maybe even give it a, a try with two or three different translations, just so you can kind of get a feel for what's going on. There's a lot of new words being used in this book, uh, and there's a lot of uh, interpretation going on, because 
very similar to the Psalms. Some of these words are, it's not real easy to kind of parse them together exactly what they mean. And so it's just a best guess uh, on the part of the translators. In fact, it'd be a best guess on the part of even a Hebrew speaker what exactly is going on here. And I think that's part of the beauty of Ecclesiastes because it doesn't quite nail down exactly what's going on in every instance. So we're going to open up the book of Ecclesiastes and we are going to read chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of Kohelet, son of David, sovereign in Jerusalem. Futility, futility, says Kohelet. Futility, futility, all is futile. What does man gain from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? A generation passes away and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. The sun also rises, and the sun sets and hurries back to the place where it arose, going to the south, and turning round to the north, turning, turning, and on its rounds the wind returns. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea never overflows. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All matters are wearisome, no one is able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But what has been is what shall be, and what has been done is what shall be done, and there is no new matter under the sun. Is there a matter of which it is said, See, this is new? It was here already, long ago. There is no remembrance of former ones, nor is there any remembrance of those that are to come, by those who come later on. I, Kohelet, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that had been done under the heavens. This evil task Elohim had given to the sons of man, to be humbled by it. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and see, all was futile and feeding on wind. The crooked could not be straightened, and what is lacking could not be counted. So I spoke to my heart, saying, See, I have attained greatness, and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my heart has seen much wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I know that this too is feeding on wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases suffering. All right, well that was... Different? Different, that's a word. That is definitely a word that could fit. There's a lot going on in these chapters. There's a lot going on in this book. So, again, what we talked about it last week, the, f- the word futility, same word as able. It's a word that means vaporous or smoke or, or uh, I think futile is a very good translation of it. What does your mm-hmm. translation say? Futile. Futile is uh, what my wife's translation says as well. She is reading from the TLV, the Tree of Life version. Also, an excellent translation. has uh, it's, it's very good for uh, getting pronouns and action verbs correct. And sometimes action verbs don't translate well from Hebrew or Greek into English, and the TLV actually retains that. So it can be a little awkward in some places, but throughout it actually reads a lot smoother than the ISR of the scriptures. Yeah, I personally find it a lot more easy to read and a lot better. I don't even know if I can say it just flows better. So it's all futile. King, the king, son of David in Jerusalem, he says it's all futile. What does a man gain from his labor in which he toils under the sun? And that is the point of this book. This is the question that he is asking is what does a man gain from all that he does? And 
I find that as a very human thought process. What do I get out of this? I know for myself, I've asked that question before. What's in this for me? What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. Where, where, where does this leave me? If I, if I pursue this thing, if I do what I think God's telling me to do, what do I gain out of it? I've even heard that exact phrase from, for example, atheists mm. saying, what's the point of the entire Bible? Who cares? Right. Okay. So there's this God and okay, what do you, you know, you're supposed to do certain things to please this guy. What's the point? That's the whole goal of philosophy is trying to figure out what is the point? What, where, how does this life measure up and, and where do we find meaning and value in our lives? And that's exactly what Solomon seems to be engaging in here is this question of, what does this all mean? What does it mean for an individual? What does it mean for a person? And and frankly, he comes to kind of this Nietzschean uh, conclusion or, or what? Nietzsche, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. So Nietzsche was a German philosopher who, who died around 1900. Um, he's famous for the saying, uh, God is dead, um, which can be taken several different ways. Uh, either his declaration that God is dead, there is no God. And that's how most people kind of understand that saying. Uh, but it, he wasn't really going at it from that point of view when he, when he made that statement. If you read it in context, uh, really what he's saying is that the way that religion is expressed throughout the world and the way that people approach religion is as if God is dead. That they, they come at ideas of religion. They come at ideas of art and philosophy and approaching life as if there was no God, as if there really wasn't any God. And so then his entire philosophy was kind of, okay, uh, what then shall we do? What, where's, uh, what, how is, do we determine right and wrong? After lots and lots of uh, philosophical discussions uh, going through different thoughts, he basically lands on the idea that power, that might makes right, uh, a very human idea, which is very different than Solomon's philosophy because Solomon had power. Nietzsche never had power. But uh, from Nietzsche's point of view, if God is dead, if there's nothing in heaven and there's no control over the earth, and then the only thing that matters is you can do whatever you want until someone more powerful than you can stop you. And, uh, and so he goes about the whole conversation in a very similar way. Nietzsche and Solomon, the, the conversation is very similar to each other. Everything's kind of futile. Nothing really matters except for this thing that I'm going to land on as my, uh, as my conclusion. Uh, for Nietzsche, it was power. It, it, as long as nobody can stop you and what you're doing, then you're, what you're doing is right. It's moral. It's just. For Solomon, however, it's as long as you're doing what God has told you to do, then you're doing right. And the, so their conclusions are vastly different. But the, the, the conversation, the idea of life being futile, uh, is very much a, a Nietzschean uh, philosophy. Um, so yeah, this, what is it that a man gains? This, this philosophical work. And the way that, uh, Solomon starts, uh, he starts with cycles. Solomon's noticed patterns in the world around him. He has seen that, you know, the, the, a generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth remains. The sun rises, the sun sets. The, uh, the wind goes back the and wind, forth and circles around. Yeah, the wind goes back and forth and circles around, returns to where it came. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea never overflows, which means that 
where they were coming from is where they return to, and they just kind of recycle. And he sees it as a weariness, as, uh, what does yours say? All matters are wearisome, is what mine says. All things are wearisome. Yeah. Okay. And no one's able to speak of it. The, uh, the the eye is not satisfied with seeing. You see something, and you're not satisfied with what you've seen. You want to see more. Uh, I mean, all of Hollywood is based on that basic paradigm right there. That's the truth. Um, you've seen how many explosions, and yet you want to see more, right? You always mm-hmm. want to watch the, the flashing colors or the particle effects in the video game. You got you want to... I think it's... And, and I could be wrong here, but I think that the, that section, the eye is never satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. It kind of means to me that it's not like, okay, I've seen enough. Now I can turn my eyes off mm. or now, okay, I've heard all that there is to hear. I'm done with that. It's more along the lines of this, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. It's like, Okay, it um, it just keeps going. You can always hear more. You can always see more. There's always right. more to see. Right. It it's not that it's not like a cup that you can fill and then overflow and then okay you're done. It it doesn't empty. It just keeps going. Right. I also think it speaks a bit to satisfaction, being satisfied. I mean, the Solomon in his day, what, what was beauty? Works of art. Beautiful women. women were definitely part of his thoughts on beauty, but he could see something beautiful. And then when it was gone, it was gone. He wanted to see more. It didn't satisfy to see. Uh, the same thing with hearing, you know, you hear beautiful music. It's so gorgeous. And in the moment, you love it, but then it's gone and it didn't really satisfy in any real way. You, know, you want to hear it again. You want to, you know, you, you're always pursuing that and or you've heard it a hundred times and you want to pursue something more it's this drive to to see more to hear more mm-hmm. so I, what you're saying i think is is right yeah it's not speaking to like a cup being full but this a never-ending process of seeing new things but i think it also speaks to the endless desire for for pleasure beauty is pleasurable the, mm-hmm. whether it's being seen or heard it's just something that brings us joy but it doesn't really fulfill anything in because, the end because there's nothing new it's right. all the same things i mean we've talked about this about movies and things in hollywood mm-hmm. you know there's they're just regurgitating the same stories over and over and over again right. there's nothing new it's all just well replays. there's there's only three basic plots to any story and yeah it's all just replays in various ways of those different plots but yeah, it's even worse today with all of the uh, regurgitations and reboots and sequels, and yeah. it's all just the same old stuff. Vanity, futility, vanity and futility. Well, that, that describes Hollywood. That is absolutely <laughs> very <an> well <laughs> description. Yes. <laughs> what has been is what shall be. Now that's an interesting statement. That what has been is what shall be. Isaiah speaks of uh, the end is told from the beginning. Uh, this idea that, that time itself has a cyclical nature, just like everything else. And that's fascinating to contemplate and to think about. There's been a lot of teachers out there who have gone back to Genesis to try to, to determine the end of days, to try to figure out how that all me- meshes out. And they see yeah. archetypes and shadows in, in Genesis, to because in the beginning, right? And so from Bereshit, you know, the end sure. is told. Yeah, but I think that kind of is futile because it's only in the mind of the 
reader. We don't see it being played out like this. I mean, sure, there are absolutely cycles. There are absolutely patterns. We've got a lot of uh, teachings on the patterns throughout our our uh, previous podcast. We've got the Patterns Bible. Yeah, we absolutely believe in patterns, and I'm not dismissing that in any way. But to try to use Genesis to predict what's coming in the future, to yes. me, seems really <laughs> kind of pointless because yeah. it's it's almost like taking a horoscope and trying to predict your next week. Your right. horoscope is so very vague. generic yeah, and vague that it's it could mean anything. Right. So, I, you know... I, I don't in any way suggest, t- you know, reading horoscopes or any of that nature either. But I am saying that you can't take what is written in Genesis and say, okay, this is exactly what we're going to see in the future. Well, and nobody t- takes it as an exact, this is exactly what we're going to see. But they see it as archetypes. A great man rising up from out of Egypt, for example, or out of the nations, who is a son of Abraham, who then reigns over the earth and subdues all the peoples. And, oh, well, there's the Antichrist right there. Joseph is in some ways a picture of Antichrist. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's scary. I mean, I'm pretty but even, sure he was supposed to be an archetype of Christ, right. not an archetype of the Antichrist. Well, the Christ and the Antichrist are so similar to each other in many ways that uh, you could probably impose that picture on both of them because the line is, is blurred between the two. Now, what do I what do I mean by yeah, that? Uh, yeah, clarify that, please. Uh, the the Antichrist will be hailed as a Messiah. He will be held up as a great figure. He will bring peace to earth uh, for a time. You know, what are these these qualities? The world will worship him. They'll bow down to him. He'll be hailed as the Messiah by the Jews. Uh, the he will look like a Messiah. He will look like a Christ. Uh, you know, um, who is it? Is it Paul, Peter, who says that? Uh, there, there are many Christs, and you know they'll say, "Oh, look, he's over here, and oh, he's over there." And don't, don't trace after them because yeah. you know they're not the real deal. Because they're so similar, and the difference between them is a matter of degrees. Then, when you have a f- picture that's just so fuzzy, like Joseph, then it, it can be easy to impose it on either one and come out with a picture. It's like, "Oh, see, this is what we're talking about." But we can't even stop with Joseph. Uh, you look at the seven days of creation. How many, how many people, uh, including church fathers? I was reading Ignatius uh, just earlier today. Um, church father from the early second century, probably died around 140, was a disciple of John. But he basically holds to the idea that there's only 7,000 years of human history. 6,000 years leading up to a millennial reign in the 7,000th year, and then the 8,000th year is going to be a uh, the new creation, uh, the new beginning, the start over. Because so, it's taking the first, the, the week of creation exactly, as... and imposing it upon human history. Okay. Um, so people do this in a lot of different ways, where they'll go back to Genesis and and Solomon seems to be kind of referring to that here, that, you know, what has been is what shall be. There's this cyclical nature to time. And we do kind of see a cyclical nature to time. Well, we've definitely seen patterns in our own lives. That's true. That's true. But, I mean, you can even uh, patterns in the rise and fall of empires, mm-hmm. uh, patterns in rise and fall or, or diseases and, and things of that nature. There, there are patterns to be found. 
we as humans, we're good at discovering patterns, but we're also good at creating patterns of our own. Yes. <laughs> of our own. But I do believe that God did create things off patterns. And I think creation kind of gives us a, a hint of that. Because Solomon's right, you know, the, the sun going up and setting and the moon phases and the, the year cycles. And it's all pattern-based. Even our own bodies are pattern-based. There's no remembrance for former things, and things yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Basically, if you don't remember history, you're doomed, doomed to, to repeat, repeat it. it. Yes, yes. Those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. And those who do know history are doomed, doomed to, to watch everyone else repeat, repeat history. Yes, <laughs> yep. exactly the truth. But I mean, you get it on a long enough timeline and you're not going to remember any of the history of, of what came before. Nobody remembers right. what happened with the judgment and the flood. Uh, but Peter speaks of a very similar type judgment coming down the earth and only this time in fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't remember the cycle leading up to it. It's the time, too much time has passed. So is it a, a another step in a cycle or is this some new event or we will never really know because we've completely forgotten what came before. So this, this idea, it sets up the whole idea of the futility of human experience. Uh, is there a matter? This is new. Uh, no, it was here. It was here before. Others have done this. Uh, there's no re- remembrance of former ones. So, so yeah, through verse 11, it's just this, it's just describing the, the cyclical nature of all things. And in this cyclical nature, he's kind of recognizing that, oh man, it's futile. There's really not a whole lot. It's all going to happen again. Yeah. It's all been here before. Yeah. Yeah. So beginning in verse 12, he then starts, you know, I Kohelet with king over Jerusalem, over Israel and Jerusalem. And so he set his heart to seek out by wisdom concerning all that's been done under the heavens. And he says that this is an evil task that's been given to men to, to do, to pursue wisdom. Uh, why would this be an evil task? Yeah, mine doesn't say evil. What does your say in verse 13? It says... What a burdensome task God has given to the sons of men to keep them occupied. So, in the Hebrew, it says, Anev Ra. 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 It is the word evil. Now, we have to understand, the word Ra doesn't mean morally evil. Well, okay, it's got bad, disagreeable, Mm -hmm. malignant, unpleasant, displeasing. Right. So, it's not inherently evil, but it... Right. So yeah. when we when we conceptualize good and evil in the modern world, we see it as moral opposites. The Bible doesn't define them that way. Good is the thing that is pleasurable, that, that is beneficial, that makes you happy. Evil is that thing that hurts. It's the thing that is disagreeable. It's the thing that is not of value to you. So we have to be very careful, especially in works like this, to not impose some sort of uh, moral, moral value yeah. to this task of trying to seek this out. He's not saying, oh, this is evil, you know, like it's Maleficent or something. He's he's pointing out that this is this is a disagreeable task to, to go through this. Yeah. And I think it's because of what he's witnessing in the world. He's witnessing this futility and it's helping him to feel his own, his own smallness in the sight of God. And in recognizing that he's uncomfortable, which is bad. Nobody wants to be comfortable. That's, that's a bad feeling. Nobody um, wants to be uncomfortable. Exactly. 
So yeah, it's all feeding on wind. Now that, we actually read that a couple times in this chapter, feeding on wind, another idiom that we see throughout the book. It's basically the idea of giving something to something that doesn't exist, it disappearing. You know, you take your money, you throw it up in the air, you feed it to the wind, and where does it go? Bye! Mm-hmm. So it's this idiom of kind of just giving something away for no return. And in some ways, it could be potentially likened to an Ola sacrifice. Okay. Where you burn something up on the altar to God, just out of an act of awe, out of an act of recognition of God. You own everything, so I'm giving something back to you. And now, out of that, you do gain a measure of relationship with God. So it's not completely feeding wind. But the the base idea of I'm taking this animal and I'm burning it up completely and no one's getting any benefit from it. Okay, I could see that being the pro side of it and the con side being, okay, I did that for what? Right. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to the sacrifice, we do know, hey, that, that kind of helps to build our relationship with God. And it gives us a firm foundation to to base wisdom off of because the fear of God is the, the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But it could be very easily seen as a very similar thing to feeding the wind because it all goes up in smoke, right? You're feeding it to the wind, blows away. Where'd it go? Where'd my animal go? This thing was benefit to me yesterday, but today it's in the wind. It's gone. And then in verse 15, you know, it says, the crooked could not be straightened. What was lacking could not be counted. And he's speaking to the brokenness of the world, I think. We can work and work and strive to fix the world in all of its brokenness and all of its crookedness and all of the injustices. And you can strive your entire life to be a social justice warrior or to to bring justice in some way. And uh, you're going to, in the end, kind of fail. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't pursue justice. Because the Bible is very clear that we should pursue justice. Yes. And that we should try to bring healing to a corrupt world. In Judaism, there's this idea of tikkun olam, the idea of healing the world, that we're to engage in in this process of healing the world. In the New Testament, it speaks of it as uh, redeeming the days, for they are evil. This idea of engaging with the world and redeeming the time, going out and, and fixing what's broken in the world making sure that justice is found where we can have a place to to engage in it. But uh, Solomon, this man who was wise, who was just, I mean, he's the one who his wisdom was demonstrated through an act of justice, mm-hmm. recognizes that even doing that, it's still going to be a crooked and broken and failing world. I think, in a way, it's a lot like Yeshua's comment that the poor are always with you. Mm, right. You can always find injustices. You can always find those that are poor. You can always find the broken and the messed up parts of this world. They will always be there, but and at least until everything is made right. But we need to focus on the the things that are going to actually improve the world. Well, well you're right. You're right. That's uh, we can always work to to bring improvement. It's uh, it's like that story of the guy walking down the beach, and he sees mm-hmm. one. There's starfish everywhere on the beach, and he sees a man approaching him who picks one up and tosses it back in the ocean. And he walks along and he bends over and picks up another one and tosses it back in the ocean. He takes a few more steps and picks up another one. And the, the original man walks up to him and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm, I'm saving the starfish. And he says, but there's millions of them on this beach. You're not going to save them all. 
what you're doing, it's not going to matter. And the man picks up another starfish and throws it in the sea. And he says, but it mattered to that one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of how we need to approach life. And I think that's what Solomon's kind of alluding to here is even though we'll never make the world right, we'll never bring ultimate justice to this world. It is broken and it is corrupt beyond repair. We're still to work at it. We're mm-hmm. still to engage in it. Now, Solomon doesn't say that. He doesn't say we're supposed to engage in it. But I think that's part of the beauty of this book is we're to recognize, yeah, we'll never fix it all. Mm-hmm. And yet we're still to engage in it. We're yeah. still to to seek to try to mend the crooked places because that's part of the character of God. I do think that the starfish story is very much a story of, of this whole futility and the meaningless of it. And yet it makes a difference. Right. And and he's talking about, I spoke with my heart saying, I have grown rich and increased in wisdom more than any who were ever before me. He experienced wisdom and knowledge. And all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge is madness and folly. And it was the pursuit of that was the pursuit of wind. It's, it the, you know, that whole section, with much wisdom comes much grief, and whoever keeps increasing knowledge increases heartache. Right. You know, I, I've known those who have delved into scripture so very deep and pursued scripture so that they can understand it so that they can fully explain it in great detail and do a decent job on some levels and do you know so they can have this increase in knowledge and yet they've spent their entire lives secluded in their house just learning and never actually applying it, never actually going out and using it to the fulfillment of and betterment of those around them. Right. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the perpetual student the person who's constantly learning. They're constantly in school. They got the doctorate degree and, and then another doctorate on top of that. And they're always out there learning and they never actually apply what they've learned. Right. And it says that they increase suffering. The one who increases knowledge increases suffering. And that could be a reference to the person themselves suffering because you can pursue knowledge all you want and you're never going to reach it. You're never going to have all knowledge. Yeah. Even when it comes to the Bible, you can learn and study. And if you're just only ever studying and never preaching it and never using it, never letting it inform your actions and, and how you interact with the world, you just study, study, study for the sake of knowledge. Uh, you do bring suffering to yourself. But I think there's also a side part here that he's talking about that the people, when they engage in this deep study forever, this constant acquiring of knowledge, they're not actually doing anything for the world. They're, yeah. they're, all that they gain is for themselves. And so they increase suffering, not just in themselves, but in, in the wider sphere of human experience. Because some of this time where they learned, oh, maybe this new tidbit or this new little bit of trivia, they could have been spent that helping someone, helping mm-hmm. the lady cross the street. They could have slowed down for a minute and helped someone change a tire. They could have fed somebody. They could, you know, pick up a, a homeless guy and drive him to a Wendy's and get him some lunch, you know, whatever. Right. There's, there's something they could have done, but in their pursuit of knowledge, they kind of lose sight of the world around them. And, and I see another aspect of it, too. I see that. You know, the more you know about a topic, 
the more you know about a topic, the more you see the, the, um, inherent flaws. Well, the, the disparaging difference between what's actually happening around you and that ideal goal. Mm. So I, I see, okay, for example, I see these people on Facebook all the time with, oh, if you, you should be a prepper and you should have all of <laughs> these things. And the more information that I can glean from that only shows me how much I don't have. <laughs> right. Only shows me how, how bad the world is about to be. And it doesn't actually edify or build me up. Mm, it just yeah. says, oh, you're not there yet. You're not right. good enough. Which then and builds in you the sense of desire or need for, or, for the or more. fear or whatever. Right. A heartache, mind says, grief. Mm. You know, I, yeah, I think that in a way that it, pursuing knowledge, at least for knowledge's sake, also just makes you realize how much you don't have. How much you don't know, how much more, how many more questions are there? How further deep does the rabbit hole go? You know, it's, it's right. grief and futile. Right. Yeah. For, for much wisdom is much grief. Um, and that could even be just as simple as I know how this is all supposed to work and I'm looking out in the world and it's not working that way. It's not going that way. And that brings grief to me because I know it's not going right. And that's heartache and it's hurts because it should be this way. People even, should be doing this and they're not. And even if you then take that and try to share that with others, they're not going to hear you because mm. they haven't done that deep of a dive. They're, I'm not saying that, right. I'm not saying that people don't hear and learn from good teaching that that's not what I'm getting at. But if you're just sharing knowledge for knowledge sake, and it's not for, hey, let me help you or let me, let me, you know, let's grow together. Or You know what I'm saying? Yeah, let I'm, me lift you up out of the, the mire where you're at so we can both be better. Yeah, it's, it's more of a, I'm up here and I'm going to tell you how to do thus and so instead of, um, you know, hey, let me get down here with you and pull you out. You, you know what I'm saying? It's it's more of a I'm better than you mentality. Right. Uh, the, it's like that meme of the uh, the guy drowning in the water and his hands up and uh, somebody drives by in a boat and they just give him a five. <laughs> I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah. You know, high five. Yeah. And, and they're drowning and they're, they, they're in real need of help. And you just come by and say, be fed and be blessed, but you don't do anything to help them out. Yeah. Um, like James says, uh, you got to grab the hand and help pull them out, especially if you're in a place uh, of security or a place of stability. And when you that. see someone who's not in that place, uh, that's what we're called to do. But also recognize there's an ocean full of drowning people out there. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's, it's our job to do what we can for as many as we can. Uh, kind of like that starfish story. So chapter one, uh, anything more to say on chapter one? I find it interesting that he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom as well as to know madness and folly. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know, that, that surprises me because if this is Solomon, mm. because we assume that it is, if this is Solomon, 
and he asked God for wisdom, then I guess the pursuit of madness and folly in its own right is a weird sort of warped pursuit of knowledge because it's, I don't know that. I don't know madness and folly. I've been blessed with wisdom because God gave it to me. So now I have to pursue the opposite because I don't have that. Yeah, it's like, uh, how can you know what uh, feeling good is if you've never felt bad? Right. How do you know what health is unless you've never been hurt or been sick? Um, unless you have been, yeah. Right. So it is interesting, though, to think that Solomon, in his wisdom, may have applied himself to no folly. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, I know wisdom, but how can I be sure that it's actually wisdom unless... I also I attempt to be the really fool, so let me do things. some really stupid things on purpose, <laughs> just so that I can tell if I'm actually being wise. And thus, you know, bungee jumping <laughs> was invented. Right, right. <laughs> or a thousand wives. You <laughs> right, know, that, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that probably was a pursuit of madness or right. nothing else. Right, that's, that's all I can attribute it to. And I, in a weird, twisted way, I think I could kind of see that, being so wise that you're like, well, you know. I'm wise and things are going like this, but if I was a fool, would they still be going like this? Mm -hmm. Would I still have all these things? Would life still be going well for me if I was dumb? If I was an idiot? If I, if I took no consideration for tomorrow and YOLO'd and, and, mm -hmm. and just kind of went out and did whatever I want. And, uh, and so I could see that. And, and if you, if he's creating a philosophy of what does it gain a man? You kind of have to go, okay, I'm here, but am I here simply because I'm me? Or am I here because of my wise decisions? Mm -hmm. So let me try some foolish decisions and see if I remain here. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing to think about, because I know for me, I've done my share of stupid decisions, foolish decisions, mm -hmm. and uh, now I'm like, hey, let me see if I can do some wise ones. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, whether or not I've actually done any, still remains to be seen. <laughs> I did marry my beautiful wife, and that uh -huh. has to be one of the wisest decisions I think I've ever made. But uh, whoo, there's been a whole heck of a lot of foolish ones mixed in. So yeah, That's for sure. <laughs> Even in that. <laughs> Even in that. So futility, it's cyclical, it's never-ending. What has been will be. And uh, it's a never-ending, this, this life that we experience, the, the universe that we live in. Um, corruption will always be part of it, and uh, knowledge will never be fully attained. Wisdom will never be fully attained. And so the overzealous pursuit of anything. And I think that's kind of what we can boil yeah. chapter one down to. Absolutely. And in fact, we're going to see that theme continue on in the chapter two and other chapters. But I think we can boil it down to this overzealous pursuit of anything is futile. It's folly. You're going to, you're, you're going to miss out and you're never going to reach what you're searching for. And so moderation. And I, I think that as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that theme moderation come up yeah. over and over and over again. Well, with that, uh, I think we're done with Ecclesiastes 1. So as we go through the week, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. 
We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai, as we seek life. Shalom.